0: Friends, Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, we'll, we're going to start reading at verse 15. So I don't know if you folks, those of you who are parents, have ever had these moments, but Laura and I had this moment with the birth of a child where the evening before our first child it was a moment of kind of fear and trembling, <laughs> and some of it was, "Oh Lord, what are we going to do? We have a, a child. We don't know what to do. We're rookies. We've never done this before. How are we going to do this?" But we also had that moment of fear of, "What if something goes wrong? What if something goes wrong in the in, in labor and delivery?" What if, what if we, when they're one or two years old, they, we have a, a terrible accident. Who's going to get our kids? How, how are they going to be cared for? And so all, on, on the, the night before <laughs> our firstborn was born, we had a moment where we actually had a lawyer come in and uh, last will and testament was drawn up and we signed off with witnesses. And, um, and one friend of ours is his name is still on that will. We should probably change it, but he was he was he was sure that if he would die, there was a mention in there that he would get a boat. And we're going, well, you don't get a boat. Um, we don't own a boat. But anyway, let's say that you drew out your last will and testament, and in it you wrote, if something were to happen to me and my spouse, we are leaving to our child, our house, our car, our money to our oldest child. Sorry, Isaac, but it's going to go to the oldest child right now. And all of a sudden a terrible accident happens and the children are, are there in front of the judge. The judge opens up your last will and testament and your oldest child is there and the judge begins to read the last will and testament. He reads grace, you get the car, you get the house, you get the money. All of it is coming to you. Then he folds it up and puts the envelope away and says, but the only way you're going to get these things is if you go to college, you're you major in a degree plan and you have a GPA of a 4.0, no exceptions. Now for grace, she'd go, uh, I could probably do that. <laughs> Isaac will go. Thanks, dad. Yeah. Uh, but the question is, in that moment, in the reading of the last will and testament, does the judge have the right to add To get this, you must do these things. The question, the answer is no. The judge doesn't have the right. He can't add to a ratified, certified document. He does not have that right. He simply has to let the document speak for itself. And in our section of scripture today, Paul Paul is saying, listen, God has already given a promise. You can't be saved by something that comes 430 years after he has granted salvation. You can't add to it. God promises salvation by grace alone. And so this morning we're going to look at Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to look at this, this sticky thing of the gospel and its relationship to the law. How do the two of them work together? So stand and we are going to read Galatians chapter 3, 15 to the end. To give a human example, brothers, even a man-made covenant Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. That is what I mean. The law, which came 3, 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law has been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law would be our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So there are some sermons. There are some sermons where um, It is really a kind of a a fun storytelling kind of piece where uh, it's like, man, do you get this? And there's some of them, some sermons like this one, where it requires you to do a little bit of gymnastics, some thinking. So I'm going to encourage those of you who um, find yourself in the normal place in about 15-20 minutes dozing to stay in it. Stay engaged. So Paul's argument here in this section is that God has already given a promise. He gave a promise. And he's saying you cannot be saved by something that comes 430 years after after he has granted salvation. So, if you're a thinker, this is where we've got to what we've got to deal with. If this is true and what the Bible says is absolutely true, if we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, if that is how God works and that is what Paul has been arguing And this saved by grace alone through faith alone is 430 years before the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. There's an obvious question that we have got to be asking. We've been saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone According to God's gracious promises given to Abraham, what do we do with these laws that have been given some 430 years after Abraham? What do we do with? all of these laws. Why does God even give, if we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, why does God give us the law at all? What was Mount Sinai all about? Why did Moses even have to go up on this mountain, get the Ten Commandments, come back down, break it, come back, go back up, come back down with another one? Why did he have to do that? Why did he extend the law to begin with if we've been saved by grace alone? The Salvation is going to be done through the grace of God by, the, by faith in Jesus Christ. Why did he even give us the law at all? What's up with these 613 commandments of the law in the Old Testament? Why do we need these laws? More practically, does it mean that we can live however we want to from now on because we've been saved by grace? You know, you can't kind of get the idea. If the gospel is Jesus plus nothing else, then we really don't need the law, right? I'm saying by grace. I don't have to worry about these, these laws that we're given. We may, we may chuck it out and just we just live by grace. And, and there trust me, there's a lot of confusion over this. And I've got to admit that it is easy to get all muddled up of, well, we've been saved by grace, but there's this law thing out here. We've got these 10 commandments. So how do I live? Do I live by the law? Do I live by grace? How do these, these things work together? Well, Psalm 119 says this. The psalmist said, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Okay, this is inspired scripture. This is the word of God. If I would read this, you would be, and I'd say, this is the word of the Lord. You would say, Thanks be to God, right? It's like, okay, so, oh, how I love your law. So according to this, the law is good, right? It's good. We should meditate on the law. It makes us wise. It should always be with us. But then you have what we're reading here in Galatians, and it feels kind of negative against the law. So we're left confused. Is a law a good thing or is it a bad thing? Well, it's not a new question and it's not just an abstract theological discussion for theologians and pastors out there. It's important that we get this whole law and grace thing right. If we don't, it is going to lead us down some wild and crazy roads with licentious behavior. I can do whatever I want. Hey, there's grace, right? Jesus will forgive me. I've got grace and I'm saved by grace. I can do whatever I want to. That's, that's bad. But you can also make the opposite mistake by becoming legalistic in your thinking. So you can either be super grace, grace, I'm a grace guy, grace, grace, or you can be la, 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 la. John Piper wrote this. Legalism is a greater menace to the church than alcoholism Alcoholics are in a tragic bondage and we must do all we can to help. But legalism is more subtle and more pervasive and in the end, more destructive. Satan clothes himself as an angel of light and makes the very commandments of God his base of operations. And the human heart is so inveterably Proud and unsubmissive, that it often uses religion and morality to express its rebellion. (laughs) So, we're not going to swing grace, 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 and say we don't need the law, and we're not going to swing over here, law, 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 and forget about the grace. We've got to figure out what is that relationship between law and gospel. How does does that all work out? Because I believe that Paul is answering this question about what is the law, and he's telling us two things. And we need to understand them both to get it right. First, he says that the law was never, never meant to replace grace. Grace. And then he's going to say that the law does have the purpose in our Christian life. And that purpose, and I'm going to give you a little little hint. The purpose of the law is to lead us to Christ. So let's look at these two. The first is the law was never meant to replace grace. So here's the question Paul was dealing with in this first section of uh, 15 to, to 19. The implied question is, why, for the love of God, why all these years did God require Israel to follow the law and to circumcise our children? Why? It, it, and now, Paul, you're, you're introducing something radical It's a major change. All of a sudden, Paul comes along and says, listen, all that you need to do is believe in Jesus and add nothing else to be accepted by God. It's Jesus plus nothing. That's fine. But what about, the people are now asking, but what do we do about this whole thing called the Old Testament? What do you do with Moses who received the Ten Commandments directly from the hand of God? It seems like we have some pretty convincing arguments here. And if they're right, we have a pretty big problem because it would seem that we need Christ plus the law in order to be accepted by God. So Paul's entire argument would come crashing down and we would be put back under the power of the law. To be accepted by God, we follow those Ten Commandments absolutely perfectly. To be loved by God, we've got to follow one after the other without any exception. The question is really about when God began to come up with a way to save people who are sinners there's actually a kind of a legal question here too some were pulling out that they thought that the binding agreement between God and his people and the binding agreement basically said keep the law be circumcised that is the law Paul and they thought they had Paul in a corner top it off, you need to know that these covenants are unbreakable covenants. Once a covenant is made, you cannot go back and change the terms of that covenant. It's said, it's done. It's it. So what is Paul going to do? How is he going to answer this question? Well, look at verse 15. To give a human example, brothers even with a man-made covenant no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified and you can see Paul's opponents going the judaizers nodding and going that's right uh-huh Paul he's you're right the law given to Moses cannot be annulled and it can't be added to once it's ratified you got it keep on going brother and it looks like an airtight case at that point. But we go on. 16 to 18 say, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring. Who is Christ? This is what I mean, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. (laughs) Look what Paul does here. He gets them to agree that, that if God makes a covenant, if God puts his word down and he makes a covenant, it is a binding one. And they are all going, absolutely, yes, amen, right on. And then he reminds us that the covenant we need to pay attention to is not the covenant with Moses, the, the law that was given in Deuteronomy. It's not that one, but the covenant that preceded it. It was a covenant covenant given to Abraham, And what was this covenant? Well, if you know how God worked in the book of Genesis, Genesis 22 says, God said to Abraham, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And your offspring shall... And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So what is, what is Paul saying here? I love that. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So often we read that as through us, Right? So what's Paul saying? Well, first he's saying the promises of grace were made to Abraham and they came before the requirements of the law and that cannot be changed and we've all agreed upon that. Paul is actually arguing that God gave Abraham the gospel long before God ever gave Moses the law. 430 years before the law was given, God said to Moses, I've got good news for you. So the gospel is not something that Paul just suddenly invented. The gospel has been there all along, all the way back to Abraham. And if you are a good student of the Bible, you also know that the gospel goes all the way back to Genesis, right? There's a promise made in Genesis 3 that God is going to provide a way. And so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is that the promises of grace have been all about Jesus from the very beginning. And this is kind of mind-blowing. What did God promise to Abraham? That by sheer grace, in, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Paul notices that the word offspring is a singular word. So what Paul realizes is, is that, before, that before God ever gave the law, God gave us a promise That a singular descendant from Abraham, one person from Abraham, is is going to bless every single nation of the earth. God's whole plan, right from Abraham's day, was to send one person who would bless all the nations. And do you see what Paul says in verse 16? Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his Offspring. It does not say to and to offspring, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. God's intentions all along was to save us not by the law, but through the gracious gift of His Son. That was always. God's intention. God didn't also do a bait and switch when Jesus was born. Well, I thought we had to obey the law. Because you look at the Old Testament, it just feels like a lot of laws, right? It's not often not one of those things that you say, I'm going to read through and have my devotional life in the book of Numbers and Leviticus and deuteronomy and all that it's it's kind of rough stuff to get through because it has a lot of laws ceremonial laws political laws moral laws all those kind of laws and so god doesn't do a bait and switch and say oh i've got a better solution for you no he says listen my intention all along was to, to give you one offspring who is going to save you he's going to you believe in him by faith you are going to be saved The gospel goes all the way back to Abraham. But thirdly, we also see that the law is subordinate to God's promise to bless the world. Why? Because it was given first and it can't be annulled. So in verse 20, because the promise to Abraham was given directly by God to Abraham, whereas the law was given by an intermediary. Who's the intermediary? Moses, right? There was a kind of an in-between, but God directly gave His promise in Genesis 22. I'm giving you my promise. One of your offspring is going to save and be save the world. He's going to be a blessing to the nations. Moses received it and then delivered it, and God says, "No, listen." My promise to Abraham is superior to the law. The law is always subordinate to grace. Look, this, some of you are kind of giving me the glazed over look right now. I recognize it. That's all right. Stick with me. The question here is an important one. Is our relationship with God based on the law Which we break all the time. Or is it based on the free gift of grace that comes from God? Yeah. Paul says it's always been about this promise of grace. Always been. It's always been about grace. It's always been this free gift that God has given and promised. It's not about the law. This is not a New Testament invention. It's always been that way right from the beginning. It's always been about Jesus. It's always been about being accepted by God on the basis of grace through faith. This makes all the difference in the world for us. Almost everything we do in life is based on performance, isn't it? You go to school. And you get grades based off of your papers and your tests. That's how it works in the classroom. How do you get job raises? It's based on your work performance, number of years that you've put in. All right, we'll give you a cost of living. You've been here long enough. Good for you. You've been through the trenches. If you get reviews, it's it's held against standards. We have been hardwired to judge ourselves based on performance. Brett Favre, the holder of many NFL passing records. Sorry, I know this is a holy place. He was a multiple MVP, 10 time All Pro. Super Bowl champion, and he said this, you are only as good as your last pass. Mm -hmm. And that's the way we're tempted to live. You are only as good as your last action. But Paul tells us, that's not the way we're meant to live. Here we see the sweetness and the beauty of the gospel which we derive with great comfort. We are not right with God by our obedience, but by our faith, by our faith in God's promises. The law says, do this. The gospel says, accept this. Do you see the difference? Do this, accept this. The devil wants to discourage you and tell you that you can never be right with God because of all your failures. But the gospel says that we are not right, that we are right. Sorry, we are right with God because of God's promise of life in Christ. Or as Phil Riken says, salvation in Christ does not rest on a law that we inevitably break. It rests on a promise that God cannot break so let me give you an example of how this might apply a student comes to a Christian professor at a university he confesses to this professor at a Christian uh, Christian professor at this university he confesses he says listen I'm a practicing homosexual I feel like a slave. And the professor says, you are a slave. And he began to teach him how to gain freedom from sin through Christ. And the student loved this. This is good news. But one thing held him back. He really believed that he wasn't good enough for God. How could God forgive Him for everything that he has done. He he said to his, his professor, he said this, first I must become a Christian like you. Then God will love me. You hear that? And the professor replied, I am no better than you except by the love and power of God. He loves you now as you are. Do you see that? God doesn't promise to deal with us based on our performance, but based on his promise. So no matter, my friends, where you are, no matter what you have done, we hold to the promises of God that God made before the law. We've got to pull out those irre- irrevocable promises irrevocable, uh, promises that God gave before the law that points to Christ and remind ourselves that that cannot be broken. Salvation is by God's grace. We don't have to work to receive it. And that's the first thing that Paul tells us. The law was never, never, never meant to replace grace. Grace always comes first. It's been that way from the beginning. And friends, as we present the gospel, To our friends, our family, our co-worker. The grace has always got to be given a place of prominence. It's not clean up your act and come to Jesus. It's come to Jesus as you are. He loves you right where you're at, my friend. And trust me, he's cleaning us all up as we go. That's the gospel. But Paul has got to do one more piece. He's got to deal with this messy law thing. So the second point he says is that the law was given to lead us to Christ. I mean, Paul says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. So there's a story that in uh, Galveston, Texas, they built a high rise hotel, um, overlooking the Gulf of Mexico they sank uh, these pilings down into the Gulf and they built a uh, part of the structure over the water you know kind of give you that water kind of cool feel and when the hotel was was about ready to have its grand opening someone thought what if people decide to fish out of their hotel windows Yeah, genius. So, what did they do? They placed signs in hotel rooms: "No fishing out of hotel windows." When people saw that, what happened? They were fishing. So many people ignored these signs, and it created quite a problem. A lot of lines got snarled, right? Uh, People in the dining room saw fish flapping against the pitcher windows as they were pulling up fish. Uh, The manager of the hotel solved this problem by taking down all those little signs. No one checks into a hotel room thinking about fishing outside of their windows. Nobody does. These signs, even though they were well-intentioned, they created a problem. And that happened with a law. In a sense, that law provoked sin inside them. You're telling me not to do that? I'm going to. My natural inclination is to go against the law. It kind of pricks up against our skin. And it causes a reaction and it reveals a condition in our sinful hearts so that we see this, the law helps us see what is wrong inside of us. Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, said this, the true function and the chief and proper use of the law is to reveal to man his sin, blindness, misery, and wickedness, ignorance, hate, and contempt for God, death, hell, judgment, and the well-deserved wrath of God. So that's why Paul gives us these images of the law. First, he says that the law is like a prison. In verse 22, the law is like a prison. The law cannot make us right with God, it can only imprison us. But in prison, what do we all long for? More prison food? More prison showers? More cages, more bars, more razor wire across the walls. No, we don't long for more of that. We long for freedom. And you've been set free. The law helps us to recognize our need for freedom and our ultimate need for Christ. I need you. Lord, I come. I confess. Bowing here. It says, man, Lord, I need you. Oh, how I need you. Every hour, I need you. The other image he gives us in 24 and 25, this one needs a little bit of explanation. Again, in wealthy Greek families, way back in the day, children were raised by guardians, if you will, a nanny, or a pedagogue, somebody who was helped raise them up. And this, this person would serve as a child's protector, the child's disciplinarian, from the age of six to adolescence. And drawing, uh, drawings usually depicted uh, this, this adult holding a cane or a rod to administer punishment. Great picture for a babysitter or a nanny, right? The relationship was often very close, but it was disciplinary. And it was temporary. One, one writer said, When a boy ceases to be a child and begins to be a lad, others release him from his pedagogy and from his teacher. And he is no longer under them, but is allowed to go his own way. In the same way, Paul is saying that the law was needed for discipline on a temporary basis until Christ came. So the law is not contrary to the gospel. They're not enemies. The law anticipates the gospel. I want to point you towards Christ. You have a need. You continue to break these things. You are living in sin and misery. And I am pointing you to Christ. Your need for a savior It isn't opposed to grace. It actually leads us to grace. That's why we need to know God's law. John Stott said, not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need for the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us, even to hell, will we ever turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. Phil Riken says, law and grace are not opponents. They're teammates working together for the salvation of God's people. The law leads to grace, which can only be found in Christ. That's why if someone comes up to me today and says, do you believe in grace? I will say yes. And amen. I will tell them that grace is where it all began. Going back to the Garden of Eden, going back to Abraham, grace is where it's at. I'd say that salvation does not rest on the law that we will inevitably guarantee we will break it. It rests on the promise that God cannot break. But then if they asked me if I was opposed to the law, I'd say Absolutely not. The law is designed to lead us to Christ. It provokes us until we realize what we are really like. And then it drives us to Christ. It cannot ever save us. Keeping the law will never save us. But it drives us to one who can. My friends, if... I want to encourage you to get into the Westminster uh, confessions. There's sections in there about the law and how how it relates to the Christian life. If you're looking in the shorter catechism, I think it starts at question and answer 73 and goes for a few. But it's a beautiful display of its relationship with the gospel. It helps us understand, well, what about all those weird laws about cloth? What about all those weird laws about circumcision? What about those weird laws about menstruation? What about all those weird laws about political entities? How do we respond to those? Because people are going to say, oh, yeah, what do you do with those? Our confessions help us understand scripture. But ultimately, what I want you to walk away with is not the Westminster confessions. I, I want you to know, friends, that the law of God was never meant to replace the grace of God. Never. It was meant to lead us to Christ. Christ. So when we are told to love the Lord your God, which is a command, by the way, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself, that's a command. And that law is meant to prick our hearts and say, why do not I love the Lord my God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength? Why do I not love my neighbor as myself? There is sin that is residing within me. God, would you help me kill it? Make me come more alive in Christ.